Well, grab your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel 13, um, page 284 of your, of your pew Bibles. Um, one of the reasons I believe why going verse by verse through the Bible, and although we don't exclusively do that, we primarily do verse by verse exposition, is because it forces us to uh, address texts we would otherwise ignore. And I can tell you that if I were just a topical preacher who woke up on a Sunday morning and randomly thought of what it is I'm angry about that day and preached, we would never come to this text. And I will say that of all the, the sermons I've, I've ever preached, and I'm now in almost 14 years, take 14 times 2 times 52, whatever it works, is the number of sermons I've preached roughly, uh, or at least. And uh, this is perhaps the most difficult passage I've looked at, not in terms of interpretation, uh, but just reading it and sharing with you. This this is a very difficult text. Uh, So I ask your your patience as we go through it, but I ask our humility as we um, look at it this morning. So with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's word. We want to read the first 22 verses. Although the whole chapter is one unit for sake of time, we'll just look at the first 22 this morning. The writer of 2 Samuel writes on their inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. And she, for she was a virgin, it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down in your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. And David sent home to Damar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Damar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. She took the pan and emptied it out before him, but she refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where can I carry my shame? As for you, uh, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. And she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus the virgin daughters of the king dressed. 
So a servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head, tore the long robe that she wore. She laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon, as he had violated his sister Tamar. Let's go Lord prayer. My father, what a what a difficult text this is. Often whenever we read passages like this, our eyes sort of get large in shock, and then we just sort of skip to the next page. We don't have that luxury this morning. So Lord, I ask today as much as any day that you would open our hearts, that we would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we would see your glory even through this ugliness, our ears that we would hear and heed and listen to your gospel, our, our mouths that we would speak the truth of the good news of Jesus and our hands and our feet that we would go in obedience. We are all stained here this morning. But Lord, this is your work. We can do nothing apart from your grace and may your grace fall down like rain. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray, amen. You may be seated. Coming to this text this morning, I have one dominant thought that just kept coming to my mind as I was meditating upon this, this passage over and over again. And it is that perhaps the greatest tragedy in the story of humanity after thousands of years, countless generations, endless rise and fall of nations, yet nothing has changed when it comes to humans. You read this text and, and you're thinking, yeah, a lot has changed in terms of the external with humanity. We have medicine and technology. We can fly now. But when you're looking at the soul of humanity, the heart of men and women, man, nothing has changed. We haven't progressed an inch. How sad is that? We would wrongly assume if we read a text like this thinking, I'm so glad we're better off now. Because you read this text and you realize we are as bad now as we were back then. To appreciate this text, we really need to see two things. And, and I want to share with you why these two things are here. The first thing we need to see is this story is structured for the purpose of meditation. For the, and, and, and it's written such a way that we can easily memorize it, and in memorizing it, we can meditate upon it. Let me show you what, what it is, is that I mean here. Is, is what, you, what you have here is, yes, a chronicling in the king's palace, right? That is true, right? And we all love intrigue of royals, of course. Even if we revolted against them over 200 years ago, we're still intrigued by what goes on in the royal household. But what's happened here is more than that. What is, what is being written here is written for our instruction, so what the writer does is he structures it in such a way that we can follow the story more smoothly and, 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 and memorize the story much easier. So what you have then is the story is basically broken down into seven parts. Sometimes they're called uh, chapters or pages or, or whatever. And in, in, in each part are two characters. One of those characters will be present in the next scene. 
Uh, let me give them to you. We begin with Ammon and Jonadab. It then moves from, from Ammon and Jonadab to Ammon and David. And then to David and Tamar. From Tamar to Ammon. From, from, and then Ammon and his servant. From his servant and Tamar. And finally, as we'll see next, next week, Tamar and Absalom. The point is to see that, that we should not simply gloss over this ugly scene we have here, but rather the writer wants us to painfully and slowly look at this text, confronting our own sin and proclivities. The second thing we need to know when it comes to this text is it relies heavily on past narratives. Although we, I could point out a few more, let me give you three narratives this heavily relies on. The first is the story of Adam and Eve. In both the story of Adam and Eve and the story between Ammon and Tamar, food plays a part. With Adam and Eve, it's fruit. Here, it is bread. Tamar brings to her, her half-brother that of bread. We'll have more to say about that in a minute. Sexual sin, at least as it relates to nakedness, is central to the narrative. Just as Eve took of the fruit and Adam took of the fruit from Eve, so too Ammon took from Tamar. Same word used in both. Shame is a major emphasis. So much so that, 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 that Adam and Eve in shame will go and cover their own nakedness, their own shame. So too, after the shame that Adam brought onto Tamar, she, she goes and tries to uh, fig leaf her shame. by with, Not with literal fig leaves, but this time with a, a ripped robe and ashes upon the head. Then there is the mentioning of a crafty deceiver. In Genesis 3, 1, the serpent is described as being crafty of all the creatures. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 3, we find that Jonadab is described as being crafty throughout Israel. It's not the same Hebrew word, but it's the same exact meaning nonetheless. Finally, there's the emphasis on death. Spoiler alert, Amnon will be murdered in the next scene. Can you think of a story by which there is shame as a result of taking what is not yours, that, you, that has been forbidden, and what comes out of that is death and judgment. So not only is there Adam and Eve that we are to look back at to understand the story, a lesser known story still in Genesis is the story of Shechem and Dinah. Shechem is a Gentile who's of another tribe who comes and rapes the only daughter of Jacob named Dinah. And after the, the dastardly act, her brothers, all 12 of them, gang up and slaughter everyone in the tribe, not to Shechem. It is a bloody, violent mess of a story. And that story, above all others, we are to see a connection with. Let me give you just a few. We'll point out some others. Both stories involve the rape of a woman by a leader of a nation. On the one hand is Shechem, who is uh, one of the great leaders of, of that tribe. Here you have the crown prince of Israel raping his sister. Both stories describe rape as a vile deed, Genesis 34, verse 7, and 2 Samuel 13, 12. The brothers react with anger, violence, and murder. Just as Jacob's brother goes and murders uh, all the Shechemites, so too Absalom, the brother of Tamar, will go and murder his half-brother, Amnon, following this assault. <clears throat> and the initial reaction of the fathers, Jacob in Genesis 34, David here in 2 Samuel, is essentially that of silence, which then leads to the act of violence from the brothers. If dad won't lead, we will, they say. Thirdly, we must see a connection between what we read here and what we just read for the last two, two, three weeks. And that is the story of David and Bathsheba. Think of the connections. A beautiful woman, 
a lust fulfilled in death. It's the same story. The sins of the father have become the sins of the sons. No wonder then, after we come off of David's repentance, we immediately see the fallout from that in the next generation. This tells us that human behavior is cyclical at best. We are great at changing the exterior. We have air conditioning now. We are terrible at changing the interior. So this text begins by showing us that with sin comes desire. With sin comes desire. Now, to understand the following narrative, we we need to remind ourselves of some of these characters, right? Because some of these characters will be new to us, even though we've we've gone through so far uh, in 1 and 2 Samuel. We are introduced to Absalom here. Absalom is is the son of David through Makkah. He is the third son of David. And thus he is heir to the throne, assuming that something happens to the first two. Of course, the crown prince, his days are numbered. Uh, And he's a prominent figure in the next several chapters. You will get to know Absalom well, but you will not be fond of him. Amnon is the crown prince of Israel. He is David's firstborn son through one of his wives. His name means my brother is delight, which is odd because when he's born, he has no brother. So I don't know what to do with that. Uh, He is heir to the throne. Then there is Tamar. She's the victim of the story. Both Absalom and, and, Amar, and, and Amnon, rather, from what we can tell, are probably in their late teens, perhaps early 20s, when these events take place. Notice how the story begins with the desire, sin's desire. Absalom, David's sister, is interesting. We're introduced to Absalom first because it's really going to be his story. Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. Notice there's, it's the only thing we know about Tamar in, in her entire story. Only thing we know about her, essentially, she was beautiful. She was beautiful. This is all that we were told about it. Beauty in the Bible is mentioned all over the, the, the place. I actually took it out of my notes for the sake of time. You're still going to get out late regardless. But beauty is found all over the place. For women, we translate the word beautiful. For men, we use it to translate handsome. David and Joseph are described as handsome. Same word used here. Sarah and, and, and others like uh, Rachel uh, and here Tamar are described as beautiful. You need to see in the Bible, uh, beauty is morally neutral. Neither right nor wrong. In fact, we see that God is described as beautiful. His works are good. They are beautiful. And thus we see true beauty through the image and likeness of of God. And so no wonder then we are prone to to want to see beautiful art and beautiful imagery. And here what we see is is that, that we are told she is beautiful, not so that we can judge her, but so that we can understand what's really going on in, in, in Amnon's mind. Because to Amnon... She only sees her beauty. To him, she is only beautiful. We are to see this and understand this through his his perspective. All we know about Tamar are her looks because that is all that Amnon cares about Tamar. And so what we see then in these first two verses is the pattern that desire takes place in the human heart, particularly young men in your hearts. It begins with infatuation. She is beautiful. It moves then to imagination. It says Amnon, David's son, loved her. Is it love that, 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 that you, just because you find someone attractive, should we then assume it is love? And what we'll find later on in the story, it wasn't love. Thirdly, uh, we go from infatuation to imagination to objectification. You can see that in verse 2, how he speaks Regarding her, that it seemed impossible, right? I, I, I've got to have her, that objectification. 
Fourthly, manipulation. That's verses 3 to 10. He will deceive her, as we'll come to in a minute. Finally, self-gratification. He will take what is forbidden for himself. Infatuation, imagination, objectification, manipulation, self-gratification. That is the story of many victims throughout human history. It would be false to pretend that Amnon woke up one day with the need to violate an innocent woman. Rather, this illicit desire was allowed to grow and was cultivated without repentance or self-control until it grew into the poison fruit of rape. This is precisely what Jesus warns us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. You have heard it said you shall not commit murder. But I tell you, anyone who, who lusts after a woman has already committed adultery in, her, in his heart. Sexual sin does not begin in the bedroom or in the DMs. It begins in the human heart. James warns us of this in James 1. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's fishing language. There's bait on a hook. All you see is the bait and not the hook. So you are enticed by your appetites, enticed by our desires, until eventually we are caught. He goes on and says, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Ask Amnon if that is true. Notice that as Amnon begins the journey from infatuation to self-gratification, Tamar slowly becomes less human in his eyes. And simultaneously, Amar, Amnon rather, becomes more entitled. He doesn't care about her. He doesn't care about her needs. He doesn't care about her future. He doesn't care about what is good and right for her. He sees only his self, his entitlements, his needs, his wants, his desires, his commands. It's almost like the command to love your neighbor is very practical, isn't it? You see here that sin makes victims. Because he has no control, people will suffer. So we begin with desire. Sin then moves to deception, verses 3 to 10. To achieve this dastardly deed, he sets out to deceive Tamar. It begins there in verse 3. He begins by listening to a council of fools. Amnon had a friend. Now that is either a good thing or a bad thing. For David, it was a good thing. Nathan. For Amnon, it is a bad thing. His name is Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. So this would be a cousin. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. He is like a servant. As we said, what, what Amnon needs in this moment of crisis and in and, and, and moral decision-making and in his desire and his lust, what he needs is a friend, a friend like Nathan, who will say, say, Amnon, I see where you're going. I see the path you're on. And in the end is destruction. And I will do all that I can to protect you. But in protecting you, I'm protecting her. You cannot go down this path. You cannot do it. And what Amnon needs to be is not a David. He needs to be a Joseph to run, to escape, to stop at all costs. But he doesn't have a Nathan. He isn't a Joseph. He's an Amnon. And what he's got is a serpent for a friend who is crafty in the ways of life. And he say, I've got a great plan for you. It works every time. The friends we choose determines our future, and they matter immensely. 
So here's, here's the plan. Or not the plan. Notice, notice how he finds in verse 4. He said to him, O son of the king, he's crown prince, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Why are you so haggard? This, this is fascinating to me. The word haggard here means poor, low, or weak. And, and his lust has brought him low. It has made him weak, sick even. Now, there's irony there here, right? He is spiritually weak at this point, which causes him to act physically strong, right? He's described as he overtook his half-sister. He is strong. She couldn't resist anymore for she was too weak. It's the irony, isn't it? The one, you may be physically strong, but you're spiritually weak. And in the eyes of the Bible, that makes you weak, period. Tomorrow, on the other hand, is physically weak, but her gentle, tender spirits will see. Her beautiful spirit is physical and spiritual here. She is the one. The weak physically in the fight is strong spiritually. He is haggard. Why? Because he is a weak man, no matter how much he can lift. He is a weak man here. And notice his language in verse 4. I love tomorrow, but daddy, I love him. No, he doesn't. Because he, like so many men and women, young and old, confuse lust with love. Whenever I was a new preacher, still had the new preacher smell, I went through the Sermon on the Mount with the church. We, we may do that uh, perhaps next year, I don't know. And, and we already read Matthew 5, Jesus mentions lust. I remember my introduction was, look, I need to get something clear. Lust is not just a male problem, it's a man and a woman problem. Lust is not a young person's problem, it's young and old. There are plenty of examples of not-so-young people doing, doing things we accuse only of young people doing. And I'll never forget at the end of the service, preach on lust. An elderly widow comes up to me and says, Preacher, so glad we heard that sermon today. These young men needed, really needed to hear that. <laughs> no, we too often confuse lust with love, infatuation with love. It's not love. You tell me that... that a few verses later, he hates tomorrow after he takes from her. Would you describe that as love? Use the term all you want to. It doesn't make it any more true. How many of us have been wounded by people we thought was love? And ladies particularly, let, let, me, let me encourage you here. Just because he's willing to sleep with you does not mean he loves you. Men, have, men can easily separate love and lust. It's pornography, prostitution. It's very easy for men to do this. Much more difficult for women to do that. So they arrange their plan, verses 5 and 6, pretty straightforward. Amnon will pretend to be sick and drag David into the deception, right? See how, how wickedness has its victims? So it isn't just Tamar's a victim. Now, dad's going to be involved in it because now he's going to feel like I was complicit with this act. And so he will pretend to be sick. He will request Tamar to come and serve him. And so we, we see this, particularly, skip down to verse 8 and 10. Tamar went to her brother and his house. He was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. She took the pan and, and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Anna said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. But Anna said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them to the chamber and then her brother. That's terrible storytelling, isn't it? I mean, that, that make a, if, if you're writing the Bible, you only got so much space to write it. And papyri is quite expensive at, at this time. Why the detail? Does that stick out to you? Because what we've got so, so far is, I really like her. Then all of a sudden, Tamar enters the scene, who's beautiful, by the way, in case Amna didn't tell you that. And all of a sudden, we're getting details of her recipe. 
Isn't that bizarre? It could have just said she made bread and brought it to him because she's a good bread maker. She's a baker, right? My mother, my mother made names a baker. So, so we might have a relationship. Right, she's a baker, good baker. End of story. Rather, it's, it's she needed it. She made it. She served it. She all this sort of Why? I think a big part of it is because the writer is a good storyteller. Because we know what's about to happen. And so instead of jumping to the action, the narrative slows because we, the reader, want to say, Amnon, please don't go into, into this. Don't do that. Don't enter that room. Don't make that choice. Call for someone else. Let wisdom went out of its day. Choose a better decision. We want that as the reader, don't we? So what does the writer do? Well, she went into the kitchen. She got out the flour. Needed it a little bit. Put a little bit of brown sugar after she was done. Just, just add a little bit of flavor. It's, it's her mother's recipe, right? And she, she got it all together. Not too hot, but fresh out of the oven, right? She, she, right? It goes through all these little details. Because you and I, we don't want this to happen again. Well, little does she know, she's about to be victimized. It's a good storytelling. We want Amnon to make a better decision, but at the same time, we want Tamar not to enter into that room. This is making it harder for us, more difficult for us as the reader, because we know, we know what's about to happen. She has done nothing wrong, and all the blame is to be placed onto Amnon and his co-conspirator, Jonadab. That leads thirdly, sin defiles. We've seen desire, we've seen deception, and then there's defilement, verses 11 to 19. In verse 11, as she comes forward, he makes his move. Perhaps we should read it. Text says, but when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, sister. Can we think for a minute? What is everything we know about Tamar so far? We know she's beautiful, right? We were told that. But leading up to this point, what else do we know about her? Amnon is presented as selfish and entitled, who cannot control his own lust. Tamar, on the other hand, is presented as tender, motherly, kind. She stops everything she's doing to care for her half-brother. Well, now he makes this move. Takes a hold of her. Come, lie with me, my sister. And she answers, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. She describes it as a violation, an act of injustice, something that has not been done in Israel. In fact, that phrase, something not been done in Israel, has been done in Israel. It's only, that, that language is used only one other time. We've already referenced it. Genesis 34, the rape of Dinah from Shechem. Genesis 34, 7, the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard it. The men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel. She's a good theologian too, isn't she? She's read her Bible. So what she does is she tries to reason with him. You cannot reason with lust and rage. She explains that this act is not only morally heinous, it will ruin both their lives. The sin of Amnon will shame Tamar both personally and communally for the rest of her life. 
Her virginity is a gift preserved only for her husband. And I feel like we should pause there because we live in a culture where that, that language of virginity as a gift to one's spouse is a joke. And we can laugh all that we want, but this is a better option than hookup culture, which leaves us empty and ashamed. He said he loved me. I was just lonely. Oh, I'm still lonely even after that night. At some point, we as a culture must learn that hookups make us feel more alone than it does loved. Anyone will love your body. Do not settle for anyone until they love your soul. Not only would her life be ruined, but so would Amnon's. I mean, note this language, verse 13, uh, as as for me, Where could I carry my shame? Notice the connection to to, to Adam and Eve. As for you, you'd be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Isn't it interesting? Here's the woman about to be violated, physically abused, sexually assaulted, and she shows more care for her oppressor than the oppressor has done an innocent woman. Isn't it incredible? She wants to protect his honor before this happens as much as her own had only Amnon loved the way she loves. Well, as a result of this, Amnon is never named king, nor would he be. But of course, that was taken from him. He gets murdered by Absalom. Well, verse 14, he refused to listen. Here it is. But he would not listen to her and being supposedly stronger than her, Right, physically stronger, not spiritually stronger. He violated her and lay with her. Lust had made the man deaf. Remember that Adam was criticized for listening to the voice of a woman? Here, Amnon is criticized for not listening to the voice of a woman. The issue isn't the gender of the voice you listen to, but the wisdom of the ones we choose to listen to. Oh, Amnon's just following his heart literally here, isn't he? Disney will make a whole movie about him, make him the hero. And as a result, he is deaf and blind to wisdom. Well, he's described as stronger. We've already said this. Men who weaponize their strength against women are surely weak. I've told this story before, and I don't mean to be flippant, but growing up, it was very clear that the number one rule of being a man is you do not harm a woman, right? The wrath my dad would show me if we ever harmed a woman would have been severe. The wrath I'll show my son if he ever harms a woman would be very severe. He'll see you part of me, he won't. Okay, and I still remember uh, in a karate tournament one time, had a fight against a girl. And in the back of my mind is my parents saying, don't hit women. On the other side is my parents on the sideline saying, hit the girl, right? I got very, very confused. <laughs> I lost that fight, and to this day, they, they make fun of me. Like, well, I didn't hit the girl, right? So I was listening. But any man who would abuse a woman to weaponize his strength for her harm and not for her good is weak. Well, the most striking verse in this entire chapter, one that just leaps off the page when you, when, when you first read this. I still remember the first time I really read this passage years ago. It's verse 15, that Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, a hatred greater and mass than the love he thought he had before. The minute the deed is done, the minute he gets what he thought he wanted more than anything else, it's gone. He hated her. What explains this? Well, we could look at several. Can I just point out two? 
First is that, is that lust is not love. The thrill was in the pursuit, not in the achievement of it. When we wrap our identity in our pursuits, achievement feels quite empty. How many businessmen, athletes, politicians, etc. finally reached the pinnacle of success only to feel empty? Here was someone who thought that, that what I need above all else, if I had this one thing, I can have it. And if I can't be given it, I must take it. You see, intimacy is supposed to be the glue of love. Intimacy is not the God of love. It's where we make a lot of our, of our fallen mistakes. If the end is intimacy, if the goal is just to have her, be with her, what you will find and discover is that intimacy makes for a poor savior. But in its right context, we see that it is a beautiful gift of God that takes two and makes one again. We saw that with David and Bathsheba. Despite all the mess of that relationship, what do we find? They came back together after mourning the loss of their son and they comforted each other. The beauty of intimacy. Here what we see is its ugliness where we take and we discard. <coughs> then there is the matter of shame. Both David and Amnon not only made victims, they made witnesses. Both try to cover up their sin. I suspect Amnon realizes what he has done. He has ruined his life. He couldn't care less about tomorrow after all. And so expulsion becomes his fig leaf. Just as David tried to ha- had Uriah killed, and the baby passed off as another man's child, so too Amnon has Tamar expelled. In fact, notice the language there. Get up, go. This is the opposite of what he said earlier in verse 11. There he's, he said, come and lay down. Now it's get up and go. It's the reverse. She responds by trying to make a terrible situation somewhat manageable, workable. Verse 16, she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong that sent me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But again, he, he would not listen to her. Her request is equivalent of a couple who find themselves pregnant agreeing to get married. Is it ideal? Is it the way things ought to work? No, but it's better than another broken home and another child without their father. Amnon yet again refuses to listen to her. And here we need to look back at two passages. One, when Adam and Eve sinned, God expelled them from the garden. Here, Amnon, who thinks he is divine, expels an innocent soul. Add to this the story of Genesis 34, Shechem and Dinah. Whenever Shechem violates Dinah and, and the brothers confront him, he says, what I've done is wrong and I repent. I will try to make it right by marrying her. He is a foolish, evil, pagan Gentile. Amnon, on the other hand, is supposed to be the crown prince of the people of God. And all he does is take and loathe and sends her away. When you compare the two stories, we are to see that Shechem, as vile as he is, is of greater righteousness than the supposed child of God, son of Jacob, son of David. We are rightly to be appalled by this. So he cast her out. In fact, notice verse 17. There's a word here. I'd be interested to see if your your translations uh, make note of this. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of uh, my presence, bolt the door after her. Does anyone have a different word than woman? You don't have to answer this, but just just look for it. Mine says woman. Most translations say woman. The Hebrew word, silence. Put this blank out of here. There's no word there. Why? Because he doesn't see her as a her. It's just another it. You can insert any word you want there, and it would work perfectly fine in the Hebrew. And we're to see it that way. 
He doesn't see her as a human being. Sin always dehumanizes others. Why a high view of the image of God is so important. Love is to recognize my neighbor is made in the image of God and I'm called to love them. Sin demoralizes that, dehumanizes the image bearers and makes them less than us and robs from them their human dignity. Take this whatever you want to call it and leave. And again, put this woman out, it's the same word that God uses in casting out Adam and Eve. Can I point out one other thing here? She's described as wearing a robe in verses 18 and 19. Notice there, verse 18, now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves. Because that's how the virgin daughters of the king dressed. And then in verse 19, she put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. Why is the long robe so important? And why tear it after the act? Well, there's a fourth story we need to look at in terms of Genesis, or in terms of, of, of the past, and this one is a third one in Genesis, and that's the story of Joseph. This word describing a long row with sleeves is only used of one other character, and that is Joseph himself. Think of the parallels. Both had robes that were stripped from them. Both were victims of sexual assaults. Both were innocent victims of other people. Finally, we get the destructive results of sin. Alistair Begin's treatment of this text and other texts, uh, uh, texts um, likes to use the illustration of a rock in water. If you were to drop a rock in, in, into water, you can pick that rock up, you can dry it off, you can clean it up, and, and that rock can somewhat be restored, but the ripples still continue. And what we see in verses 20 to 22 are those ripple effects. In chapter 11, David proved to be a man of lust and violence. Chapter 13, his heir is the man, is a man of lust, and his other son is a man of violence. Who we are affects other people. What we do, how we act, and a lack of self-control will ruin lives for generations. In verse 20, it isn't long before Absalom, Tamar's full-blooded brother, discovers the truth. Now there is some debate as to what he says to her here. Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. Is he being gentle? and, and like, Not gentle, but in the sense of, I'm going to take care of this, my sister. Or is he being flippant? Ah, not that big of a deal. Boys will be boys. Locker room talk, I'm sure. And I don't know the answer to that. But I can say that he will eventually, after waiting a few years, abide his time to get his revenge. Well, notice there in verse 20, Tamar, it says, lived as a desolate woman. Boy, we are far from the lush green of the Garden of Eden, aren't we? And we're just as far today as, as we were in the palace of David. We are truly living in a wilderness of iniquity. The verb means to be astonished. It implies more than her life was ruined, but that she was at a loss. Why her? Why him? How did things come to this? What am I supposed to do now? What did I do wrong to deserve this? Will he ever be brought to justice? Am I safe with Absalom? He is, after all, just Amnon's brother. And my last brother did this to me. Can I ever be safe again? Around men? Around family? Around strangers? In the community? In this palace? In this home? Am I ever safe? She's been robbed of everything. She is desolate. 
David does essentially nothing. He gets angry. Punched the wall, I'm sure, but he did absolutely nothing. This would be a pattern for David. He's a father who is disappointed in his children but never corrects or addresses their sins. David is a great leader. He's a terrible father. And that will essentially be the rest of the story of 2 Samuel. Spoiler alert. His family will cause him more trouble than the Philistines, the Moabites, and the Ammonites combined. He was courageous in his job. He was a coward at home. And in verse 22, we see that the pattern of Amnon, that Amnon demonstrated with lust, is now a seed planted in the heart of Absalom that would result in violence. Where there is sexual sin, violence is to follow. Remember that when you turn on your news. The more we celebrate sexual sin, the more violent we will become. You cannot separate those two realities. Well, for our purposes, this is, this is where the story ends. I wish there was a verse that said somehow God showed up and they all lived happily ever after. I wish there was that verse. We saw some of that with David, didn't we? Of God's covenant being renewed with David upon his repentance and faith. Man, I, I wish we had that here, but it just, it just ends. She is desolate. He is angry. The sin of sin and evil stains every character in this story. Before we leave, can I make just a few final words regarding this text and some application? The first is to encourage you to please, for the sake of others, let alone your own soul, make war against lust. Will you make war against it? Lust is often presented as a victimless choice. Yet we never consider the women we objectify, the people we victimize, and how this pattern of behavior affects the people we love. Even now, I suspect, there are some here convincing themselves that hungry eyes on social media, staring at women who present themselves in sexual ways, is okay because they welcome that objectification. No one needs to know. And right there, you have just dehumanized an image bearer of God like Amnon did. We have convinced ourselves that lust stays in the heart and never affects anyone, but that is a lie. If you want to eliminate most of the world's suffering, eliminate sin, which originates in the human heart. Please, I beg of you, make war against it. Secondly, I beg of you to surround yourself with godly influences. David had a Jonathan. Naomi had a Ruth. Paul had a Barnabas. Amnon had a Jonadab. Who you surround yourself with will shape your future as much as almost anything. The wise surround themselves with the wise. The godly surround themselves with the godly. The fool and the wicked surround themselves with the fools and the wicked. And you young people in particular, the day will come, you're going off to college, you're going to go somewhere else, and you will be so nervous about making friends, you'll make friends with the first people who talk to you. And you couldn't care less about their influence in your life. You're going to find over time their influence is going to show up more. You may live in, in, in denial of it. You're going to do this when you go to your first job. You start your career. You start making contacts. Please hear me. Please hear me. Surround yourself with godly influences. Choose a Nathan. Choose a Ruth. Choose a Barnabas. Avoid Jonadab's. 
Thirdly, this is our last point. I am exhausted. There is grace aplenty for victims of sexual abuse. Maybe you're here and no one knows. But something happened to you that one night in college all those years ago. You've told yourself it was all your fault. You shouldn't have gone to that party, accepted the invitation, or worn that dress. Maybe you're here and you thought you had your heart. But he had your heart, but really all he wanted was your body. Maybe you were young. The choice was taken from you, from a figure who should have protected you. The good news of the gospel is that there is grace aplenty for you. In the Old Testament, there, on the Day of Atonement, it was the Easter of the people of Israel, there were two main sacrifices the Israelites were to make. And they involved two goats. The first goat, the, the theologians call it the propitiatory goat. This is the goat by which the wrath of God is appeased. And that goat is sacrificed. And blood goes everywhere, onto the priest and onto his hands everywhere. And thus the wrath of God for sinners is, is laid upon him. The judgment of God is satisfied. For, that is, for, for sin requires the just wrath of God. And Israel was made up of sinners alike. And so they must have one to, to satisfy the wrath of God, lest they be under his wrath. And what a bloody, violent scene for a bloody, violent people. But then that, that priest who has now slaughtered a sheep will take his bloody hands and his bloody garments and he will go to the second innocent, blameless, pure goat and he will lay his hands upon that goat. He will say a prayer and, and, and the blood from the life of the one goat will now be transformed, transferred to, to the second goat and he will send that goat into the wilderness never to be seen again. What you see here is not just that, that, that we must be, that, that, uh, we, that sin must be uh, addressed and it must be conquered, but sin must be cleansed. So what we have then are those who are guilty of sin and those who are the victims of sin. Both are satisfied originally in these goats, but are fulfilled ultimately in Christ, who is both the goat of propitiation and the goat of expiation, the scapegoat, who takes upon himself man's wickedness, our evil, and our sin upon himself and satisfies the just wrath of God when it is darkness at noon. At the same time, by being raised from the dead, he cleanses us of all unrighteousness. He cleanses us from all of our shame and guilt and fear and anger. He cleanses us of that because no longer is our identity in what others have done to me, but rather what Christ has done for me. In fact, we see parallels between what we have here and what we see in Christ. They are striking. Both are victims of violent men. Both have their robes stripped from them and cast outside. Both are abandoned and abused. The difference is Christ takes upon himself all of that throughout all of human history. And he would not stay in the tomb. So that those who are victims of sin can be cleansed. And those who are guilty of sin, it can be conquered. You and I need both goats. You and I need the same Savior. Who is like us in every way yet without sin. He can sympathize with, with us as we suffer and are victims of sin. And he cleanses us from it all. 
I don't know what your story is this morning, what struggles you are bringing here, or why the Lord has led us to this text at this time on this Sunday. But I do believe that this text is smothered with the blood of Jesus, as shall you be if you will come. I don't know what lies in your past. I don't know what lusts and fears and struggles you have in your heart right now, but there is room aplenty for people like you at the cross. If you will come, let's pray. Our Father, I ask that you